Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churthus. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the original omnivore's dilemma. If you're willing to eat almost anything, how do you decide what's good and what's not so good? Our guide is Elisabetta Visalbergi, a researcher supported by CNR, the National Research Council here in Italy. I am a biologist and I studied for most of my life the capuchin monkeys, the South American species, with which I fell in love at the zoo in Rome. I think I'm still in love with them because they taught me so many things that I will thank them for all the rest of my life. Elisabetta Visalbergi and her colleagues have studied capuchins not just in the zoo, but also in the wild in northeast Brazil. They are extremely beautiful monkeys with long tails. The female, an adult female, may weigh about two kilos, and the males three kilos and a half, four kilos if it's the dominant male of the group. They grow slowly. They are weaned around one year and a half, and they live a very long, long lives. Nobody has good data for the natural conditions, but in captivity can be about 35, 40 years of age. And this is a lot for a tiny animal. The group size can change. It can be like eight individuals up until, up until in our site with other species, 25, 30 individuals. And they often, when they become too large, they split into, into groups. And um, they are omnivores. They have big brain compared to their body size. They have long maternal care. They are amazing because uh, um, in many uh, aspects, their behavior reminds uh, the behavior of the chimpanzees that are so closely related to humans. Thinking about chimpanzees and food, the first thing that comes to mind is that chimps sometimes use a tool to get food, like when they fish for termites with a thin branch. But chimps are not alone. Capuchins do it too, and not just in zoos. Elisabetta Visalbergi discovered that wild capuchins select stones to use as a hammer to break extremely hard palm nuts on a suitable anvil. We'll get to that. But first, as Dr. Visalbergi said, capuchins are omnivores. So, like all omnivores, they face that dilemma of deciding when something new might be good to eat. In general, uh, an omnivore is a little afraid by new things, and uh, when encounters something that looks like food, he tries to bite it, to chew it and ingest a little bit of it, very little, and usually waits hours or even days before eating more of that food. And what is very interesting as a very common and general principle in, um, uh, for in many animal species, this behavior of tasting a little bit and then waiting time and then checking whether your body responds in a bad way 
to the ingestion of a novel food. If the novel food provokes vomit or a very bad uh, feelings on, on your mouth, or if hours later causes diarrhea and uh, um, headaches or any kinds of uh, very unpleasant feedback, then the animal somehow automatically, I mean, not because it thinks about it, but because the body tells something about it, uh, starts to um, make a connection between the novel food and the disease, the gastrointestinal disease, and tends to avoid exactly that food when he, the animal encounters it uh, later, other times. It's incredibly powerful, this notion of avoiding things that make you sick. Because even when you know, I know, I've eaten things that weren't very novel. And I also at the same time had gastric flu from bacteria, not, not from the food. And for a long time afterwards, I couldn't eat the food I ate before I felt sick. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's not only very powerful, but is also very widespread in the animal kingdom. And it's very simple in its functioning. However, not necessarily the individual uh, is aware of what's going on. For example, the natural tendency for an animal is to eat what has been good. But if, uh, for example, what has been good has, uh, in our culture, a value that is uh, negative, you should not eat this, then the, the reasoning and the, your tendency are contrasting. And so often humans eat things not so much because they feel that it's good or it's bad, but because there are cultural influences. But with animals, it's more simple because the, the, the social influences are not very powerful. It's true. There are no advertisements for animals. Exactly. And, and dog food advertisements are not for dogs. They're for us. But the fact is, if I think about myself, how do I learn what's good to eat? And clearly, people learn by watching other people. They learn from their parents um, leave aside reading and advertisements and all that. So how do you discover the role of learning and imitation and so on in, in animals? First of all, I think you should abandon all the preconcepts based on how we behave as humans. And when I say we, I refer to Westerners that live in our type of societies. So we should look at the behavior of animals and really think that they might have the same channels to learn that we have, but also very different channels to learn. So how do these animals learn? If you really observe the behavior, you notice, for example, that the babies like uh, our babies, are uh, fed with the mother milk. But during the weaning period, they are almost abandoned by the mothers. So they are on their own, sometimes with other infants of the same or similar ages, 
and they are confronted with the with everything is available in their habitats. And you see, for example, infants that chew or try to chew leaves or stems that are not at all good to be eaten. But they still spend a lot of time. And the mother might be nearby. It doesn't do anything. And this is really amazing because the mother seems not to care about what the baby, what the infant is doing. The baby then may try everything is around, including perhaps some leftovers that fall from the mother mouth or just by being close to the mother. Of course, the infant encounters also the food that the mother is eating, for example, a ripe fruit on the tree or the leftovers of the fruit or some parts of the fruit that are bad and tries and mouths the food and starts to chew and so on. But again, the mother doesn't care. Even when the infant has, I don't know, an insect that is poisonous or is in some danger because there is a bad animals that might hurt the baby, the infant, the mother doesn't care. Even if she knows that this is an insect that has hurt her in the past, we assume she knows that, but she doesn't protect the infant from that. No, there is no protection. I've never seen a case of protection. Even if there are wasps, there are bad uh, insects that just um, are, are not good to eat and so on. So you can see by sitting with the monkeys in the field in Brazil, you can see these various behaviors of the infant apparently not being taught by the mother, apparently exploring for itself, trial and error and what have you. But that doesn't answer the questions precisely of of what are the influences on, on what it eats. For that, you have to come back and study them in an experimental situation. Yes. For example, a series of experiments that were done in the past by Elsa Dessa and myself showed us very unexpected results. If um, an individual, and here I'm not talking about uh, infants, but uh, even adult individuals, see another individual eating, and if the first individual has a novel food, and the other individual in the nearby uh, space is eating a familiar food, then the one that has the novel food automatically eats more of the novel food without any rational reason. It's just that seeing somebody else eating makes the animal that should be cautious eating more of the novel food. And it's amazing the fact that even if uh, his novel food, for example, is red and he eats another individual in the next enclosure seeing eating a food that is blue, still he will eat more of the red food without doing any uh, consideration about the mismatching in colors of the two foods that may indicate that the two foods are different. So what matters is socially, somebody nearby is eating, so I'm going to eat. Exactly. And that is a very big disaster for us as well. Because it has been demonstrated that when humans eat with other humans, they tend to eat more. 
and there is a trend. The more people are on the table, the more you are going to eat. <laughs> um, so, okay, so, so if it's a question of being alone or being with a, another, in, in sight of another animal that's eating, you eat more of a novel food when you can see another animal, even if that animal is eating a different food completely than you would eat on your own, yeah? Yes, but of course, this is an experiment. It's something that we has something artificial on it. Because if you go out with friends and if the monkeys eat together in a field or over a tree, they are more likely to encounter the same food than... Uh, if they eat completely separately in two different restaurants, for example. So nature, again, has uh, an extreme power in uh, canalizing our lives and our choices and what we encounter. And therefore, uh, for example, a group of monkeys is likely to encounter the same food. And if the others are eating, I don't know, uh, a certain fruit on a tree... Even uh, young individuals or older individuals are likely to encounter them and to pay attention to the same food. And here again, if the flavor is good, if the fruit is sweet, if it's a pleasurable experience, they all, as individuals, will learn that eating that fruit is good. And they are all likely to include the same type of fruit in their diet. So at the end, everything works rather well. It works rather well, even if they're not kind of actually being rational about it. Absolutely. Because the system is built in an effective way. At the same time, think about the nightmare that for a mother monkey would be to be present every time that the infant encounters a novel food so that the mother can really tell, no, do not eat it, this is dangerous, or, okay, that's good for your health. I mean, first of all, we never saw a monkey like this. But also in humans, this is an obsession of our Western culture, because in many other cultures, the Infants are on the table with the others or in the courtyard or are in nature and they often insert in the mouth bad, good, medium things. So everything works. You can learn from your own experience without a mother monitoring you all the time. So you can learn, as you've said, you can learn to avoid things that are not good for you. Can you also learn to prefer foods that are good for you? I mean, you mentioned sweetness and fruit. Obviously, sweetness is a source of energy, and energy is very important. So I think many, many animals like things that are sweet without any learning whatsoever. Do the capuchin monkeys... um, Can they tell an energy-rich food from a, from a, a less valuable food? Can they learn those differences? Yes, they can. And it's amazing uh, how relatively easy it is for them to learn. We did an experiment in which we presented novel foods to animals individually 
and to animals that were in, uh, in group. At the beginning of the experiment, their preferences went to foods that were richer in sugar. Later, with more experience, their preferences changed and they started to prefer the foods that were more rich in energy, regardless of whether the energy came from sugar, from protein, from grease, from whatever. So they switched from sweetness to energy density. Exactly, exactly. So, and this means that uh, with some kind of feedback from their own body, they were able to uh, maximize the energy intake. Another interesting thing that is very counterintuitive, uh, given our culture now and the kind of food that we find in the supermarket, is that monkeys did not really like and did not prefer food that were rich in fibers because the fibers slow down digestion and therefore also um, makes you work a lot to digest things and you gain less energy in this way. We've been talking about the kind of foods where you, you pick it, you eat it, it's, you know, maybe you catch an insect, maybe you pull a leaf or a fruit. But the capuchins also eat things like nuts, where it's not obvious that it's something to eat rather than, say, something more like a stone. How do they eat various kinds of nuts, and how do they learn to do that? This is, um, is a very interesting topic that uh, was really in my heart since uh, many, many years ago. In fact, it started with the captive capuchins using stones to crack open uh, walnuts or uh, hazelnuts or uh, almonds. And, uh, and the funny things about it was that uh, little by little, they learned to use stones, hard stones, bigger stones. They learn... Um, precision on their uh, strike. And uh, at that time, uh, there was no information about the use of stones to crack open nuts in uh, natural settings. There were a few anecdotes. And, um, and I thought, start reasoning why there was not uh, nut cracking. And I thought that uh, probably because the monkeys are very arboreal and they go rarely to the ground, Perhaps in many forests you don't find stones to crack uh, nuts and you don't find good anvils. And so all these factors might have prevented the discovery of stone to use. And then uh, um, a little more than 10 years ago, we ended up with colleagues from United States and Brazil to discover in one site in the northeast of Brazil a population, a group of capuchins that habitually cracked open big palm nuts with uh, anvils and stones. And this was like, uh, yeah, it was the most uh, emotional moment of my life, I think. And in that case, almost all the individuals of the group were good uh, nutcrackers. And uh, so this was the ideal situation in which to study how this behavior was transmitted. The majority of the capuchins that live from 
the north of Argentina to uh, to Colombia. Do not do this behavior. So there is something strange. But they have they have the nuts. I mean, the palm nuts are available in some sites for sure. There are palm nuts in some sites. We don't know. Then we started to study these capuchins from many different point of view. And for example, we saw that this monkey spent a lot of time on the ground, much more, like one hundred times more than the monkeys living in Amazonia that are high up in the forest. In Boa Vista, the sites where we work, they are often on the ground, like 30% of their time. 30% of their time, it means that there are many opportunities to encounter the palm nuts. These are palm trees that produce the nuts at ground level. And we um, designed a long-term um, study in which uh, um, for a month, every six months, we looked at the influence of the nutcrackers, the expert nutcrackers, on the young ones that didn't know how to crack and how they interact. So we thought, okay, are they really watching the professor teaching uh, how to crack nuts? Are they close to one another? What do they do? From this data analysis, it became clear First, that there was no teaching. Second, that since six months of age, all the uh, young individuals are allowed to be close to the nutcracker, are allowed to take pieces of the shell or even tiny bits of the kernel and eat it, that there is a lot of interest going on, but that there is no parallel exercise of the young individuals and the old individuals that were, uh, the interest was more for the food than for the behavior of the nutcracker. But what is extremely interesting is also that when the nutcracker went away and left the anvil with the stone, the youngs arrived and started to eat and started to move the stone and depending on the age, start to bang the stone or start to bang the nuts and made all kinds of combinations that were very sloppy at the beginning. And little by little, with exercise less and less sloppy, they learn how to crack nuts. But it's years and years of exercise, most of which occurs when the adults are not in view and are not cracking themselves. So it's almost as if they see that the adult can get something good to eat, but to get something to eat, good to eat themselves, it's pure trial and error. I would say yes. It's pure trial and error. And so, again, uh, they reach uh, an incredible uh, expertise in what they do by trying and by tuning their uh, behavior little by little. The other thing that intrigued me that I read that you'd done was... Palm nuts, it's a question of cracking them open. I mean, if you can do that, you get the nut. But they also eat cashew nuts. And I know that, that humans processing cashew nuts, they have to wear protective gloves or their skin gets eaten away. The cashew nut, many people don't know this, but the cashew nut is surrounded by kind of corrosive, I don't know if it's, I think it's an acid, um, that eats into your skin. So how do mm -hmm. capuchins get 
cashew nuts. This is another uh, really amazing story because we all love the cashew nuts and we ignore that the mesocarp, the green mesocarp that is around each of the nuts that we eat is indeed extremely dangerous. And the monkeys, of course, found a wonderful solution to do it. In our site, when the mesocarp is still relatively soft, they take, but the nut, the fresh nut is already inside and good to eat. They take this uh, nut and rub on uh, um, the bark of trees until they produce a small hole. And then with the finger, with the um, index finger, they extract the nut. The adults are extremely good in this uh, very precise movement of the finger and in judging also when the nut is rubbed uh, enough to have a, a good hole that allows this extraction. The young ones are much more sloppy and the very young ones have sometimes very burned lips. You can see that? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. And uh, since I, I'm an experimenter, I also try the effect of the me- the, this liquid, the acid that is in the mesocarp on my own skin. The first year I made it on my arm, and of course I had vesicles and uh, everything was red. And the next year I did it on my lips, and this was really, really bad because you really have a... Um, a vesicle big that grows and then it leaks. I mean, very disgusting, but I had to know what happened. When these nuts are not green, but they become like brown, and so the shell is harder, the capuchin switch to another strategy. And in that case, despite the fact that they can break the nut with their teeth very easily, they use tools. So they use small objects, any kind of object. They do not need a big quartzite as for the pole nuts. They can have a, a, a piece of coconut uh, or already broken or a small stone or a small sandstone and they break the, the shell and they eat inside. At that point, the liquid has become a raisin, so it's much less dangerous. Does kind of make you wonder how people ever learned that inside that caustic thing there was a decent nut. I mean, this is one of the great mysteries for me. It's possible that is a mystery, but we have, But uh, again, the capuchins made uh, uh, me thinking about a possible hypothesis. Because uh, a few years ago, there was a fire in the forest And uh, some of the cashew trees were also um, burnt and was the season of the cashew nuts. And so what happens is that some cashew nuts ended up on the ground. And I saw the capuchin monkeys going there and collecting these almost burned nuts that, of course, since they are burned, the caustic and resin is um, very much neutralized. And by walking in this uh, land that was uh, still with some part that were very hot for their feet, they collected the nuts and they ate it. So I think that humans might have discovered 
that there was a good nut uh, inside by exploiting a, a, an accident like a fire in the forest. Well, roast, roast cashews are much more delicious than plain cashews. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, but I did not test the preference of capuchins yet. So I know this is an impossible question, but does what you know about capuchins, what you've learned about capuchins, does that enable you to offer any advice to parents who are struggling with children to get them to eat properly? Uh, yes, uh, but I have a colleague that worked on these topics at the very beginning for her dissertation. Her name is Elsa Dessi, and she just um, got a project funded to study uh, the way in which children can be weaned in a more uh, less frantic and less time-consuming way than what parents usually do with a lot of problems. It's a, in, it's a kind of winning in which the child itself chooses what to eat in a more, uh, um, I would say, uh, monkey-style uh, way. In the past, we studied the, the problem of how to overcome an initial avoidance for, for novel food or for something that the infant or the monkey doesn't like at the very beginning. And we uh, found that if you just present the food over and over again without paying real attention to the food, without insisting, without obliging the, the child to eat it, things go usually well. So I think that um, perhaps less parental care may aid a more... Um, naturalistic way of including new foods in the diet. Elisabetta Visalbergi, with what seems like pretty sound advice, as long as the foods on offer are relatively healthy. But what do you reckon, though? Maybe a little less misplaced parental care at mealtimes is the answer to fussy eaters. The nutcracker capuchins really are a treat to watch. Even the softest palm nuts are ten times harder than a walnut, and it's fascinating to watch how the monkeys deal with that problem. Elisabetta and her colleagues made a video that shows them at work and experiments to see whether they really know what they're doing. They do. The video trailer's got a bit on the nutcrackers, and I've put it in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com, along with a link to more details if you're interested. My thanks again to Elisabetta Visalbergi and her colleagues for all the work they've done to shine a light on capuchin monkeys and how they choose and process their food. And now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.